Hello, and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 26, 2018, otherwise known as... Actually, I don't know what today is. Does anybody have a good idea? What should today be? I think we should make it a new national holiday. Yeah, Saturday. I was Na- going to say toothpick day, but I like that better. Modern Maker Podcast 100 day. That's the new national holiday. What, was toothpick day actually the thing? No, I was going to make it up. I was, just, I was saying we'll make it a new national holiday. And toothpicks seems like the go-to. I don't know if they have a day yet, so... <laughs> it's wood. They're made out of wood. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's relatable. Topical. We're, we're still waiting for Chris just to start making them up and say, oh, yeah, it's Pop-Tart Day. and That has to exist. And if it does, I will celebrate. <laughs> Wait, did you ever answer where you actually find these different days? Yeah, there's a website. Google? Google, my friend. I've heard of it. Alta Vista. So wait, what are we doing today? Are we talking about uh, so what yeah, we're so today on? we're going to keep it pretty light. We are not going to talk about what we're working on because we thought that might be kind of boring. And hang on one second. This is There's simil- a big pause button right on the middle of the screen. <laughs> okay, so we are not going to talk about what we're working on because I thought it'd be too boring. Wanted to keep it more, uh, I don't know, interactional. So figured we just do Q and A type stuff. So I don't know if anybody has any questions out there. What are, what have you been working on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that you guys have 100 episodes in the books, can you just quickly go, each of you, and uh, talk about what the other two folks on the podcast has taught you in your 100 episodes? What you've learned from each other? I could go really fast. There's one thing that I've learned is to uh, like respect your ideas more. Because uh, a lot of people, I think, get critical on themselves saying, you know, just to say like, oh, this is a piece that I designed. Just saying the word I designed it seems like a hard thing to say because it makes you sound, I don't know, it's got a conceited sound to it. Like you're fooling yourself or something? Right. I designed this. Right. And it's not only just saying the word design, but it's about being confident in what you're making, things like that. Uh, But being able to be with like-minded people that that had that confidence before I did. Uh, Chris has been building commission pieces long before he was doing YouTube. Ben had a career long before he was doing YouTube. I was in high school whenever I was before. <laughs> uh, long so, before I was on YouTube. Yeah, so it's been, a, like, honestly, it's been the biggest kind of growing experience that I could have asked for, and I think that's a big thing. It's just being confident in what you do and not being, don't be conceited, but also don't be shy about it. Straddle that line. Exactly. I think for me, the specifics have been learning about audio equipment. So, like, audio is something <laughs> I've never paid any attention to and just could care less about for the most part. Totally. Like, I've always just thought that, like, if I can understand it, that's, that's good enough. But, I mean, Mike especially, Chris Lesso are both sort of audiophiles and a little bit more precise on those things. So, the, that would be the specific uh, area that I've learned the most on that. I think the other thing is just, and this isn't just unique to our podcast, is that uh, I think seeing the common ground of, uh, of a shared interest, right? So making things. And seeing that not just amongst the three of us, but amongst the, the guys from the Making It podcast, amongst all of you guys, that this really is like a pretty broad bridge. I mean, it, it encompasses a lot of different political uh, beliefs, different lifestyles uh, from all different parts of the country and even, even the world. Uh, that that sort of uh, that understanding of the the intellectual and physical challenges of figuring out how to make something that is both useful to yourself but also expressive of your ideas, uh, that's a really broad category that encompasses all sorts of different types of people. So I think that's been the thing that I've learned is just and I 
It's an inherently positive thing. Like, uh, we've been working together. We started our, basically the first time we had an extended conversation, we recorded it as a podcast. Um, totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing weird about that. And I think it was done with the, the, the optimism sort of behind that to, to, to think that, like, oh, was, was all based that we kind of were interested in what the other people were doing. And there's never been a, a type of content that I've produced that's been more effortless. Because it really is like this sort of, I mean, it's still work. Like, we still go, oh, when can you do it? When can you do it? We're still sort of figuring out schedule and stuff like that. But it's definitely like a highlight of the week because you know we can just, we don't have to prepare because we're preparing all week. <laughs> uh, building up anecdotes, frustrations, uh, moments of inspiration. This is just sort of like the, ch the time when we get to sort of recap and uh, be each other's sort of therapists about it. So... I think it's, it's not so much that I've, I've learned something from it, but it's more that it's, uh, I found that the thing that I've always liked about making isn't just an internal exercise that brings peace of mind and zen to my life. It's actually something that I can use to sort of uh, connect with other people. I would say for me, the thing that I've, I don't know if learned or maybe changed the most about since we first started it is that when I talk to people, I always go in with this assumption that I'm boring them. And so I find myself trying to like rush through it as quick as I can to make them the least bored or experience the least amount of boredom. What was the quickest way you could describe what you did? <laughs> <laughs> Cut wood, build furniture. No, honestly, like, I mean, if you listen to the what we're working on sections, like mine probably are about half the length of everybody else's ends because I get uncomfortable talking about myself. And so I think I've come out of that shell a little bit more just from being around these guys who are better at doing it, and especially Ben who can, I swear you can tell, Ben, we need you to do 45 minutes on World War I right now. He'd be like, oh, yeah, I can do it. But Mike will interrupt me about halfway yeah. through. <laughs> Touche. Well, no, I, 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 I mean, but I don't think of it as like talking about yourself. I feel like I think it's all, it's always been easier to talk about what you're doing than yourself. I think, it, and I think that's why it's a good bridge for bringing people together. It's it can be awkward to go up and just say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm all about. But if you have this sort of thing, and, and often inanimate objects or the process of of making them, uh, it it does create that sort of neutral ter territory in between where people can see in that thing what they want it to be. Um, and I think that's often why like, people like talking about art or film or music or things like that. It, it sort of is this, uh, this surrogate for ourselves. Um, but when there's actual physical exertion, uh, existential angst about the originality of your ideas that you're expressing, that, that lets that sort of thing that's in between us that we're talking about to each other also have some meaning uh, at the same time. Good point. And there we go. See? You can talk about anything. Yeah, then just having an outlet. So typically when you're working by yourself, like most people that are building things, they're doing it in their garage, and when you have a challenge, you're just racking your brain about it. But when you have people that, and this goes for a podcast, this goes for friends outside of, outside of doing a podcast, but just having people that you share common interests with and that common thread that you're kind of talking about. A lot of people have what is to them a stupid, simple solution that's completely gone over your head for some reason for the past five days that you've been thinking about it. So it's always good to be able to just have some people that are right. on the same wavelength. Yeah, for, for sure. Like, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Dolores about intricate YouTube strategies. And she's like, eh, 
<laughs> Go talk to Ben and Mike. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so who's got another one? Hands? Who's got hands? Any, who's got hands here? <laughs> Woo! I figured I was going to hear some claps, you know. That's... Really? I'll see this thing. Hey, buddy, doing... what's... Chris, are you doing crowd work? Yeah. <laughs> All right, where's everybody? Yeah. Anybody here from Whittier? Uh, what, what is your favorite type of projects to work on? Like when you're not, you know, if you, if you didn't have to make a video on it, what would you make? Chris, I want to hear this because you built a lot of things before you were doing videos. Uh, if I did, I, and has that changed since you've started doing videos? I mean, no, for me, I'd say it's anything that's like the new thing that I haven't worked on. So I know that's a very vague way to give the answer, but that's what got me out of selling furniture was I was sick of making the same things over and over. So just being able to have a new idea and explore it and figure out how am I going to go about doing this and then you know, maybe you fail a little bit the first couple times, but you, you get better as you do it more and more. And I think that's like the most exciting part of it is, for me, the exciting part of it is always that initial idea. Like, I don't know if everybody's like that, but that's like where I get my biggest spark from. And then it's a matter of like, okay, now I got to actually go through this and hopefully get that or close to that same level of satisfaction when I have a finished prod project. Um, but yeah, I mean, to go back to it, it's just working on new things and continually having something new to work on. And I, I don't know, I mean, it's kind of weird because when you're producing content, sometimes it's easy to lean on what you've already done. Uh, you know, that you can, you're going to spend less time and probably be more efficient as a business doing that. But I think after doing it a few times in a row, you probably just get back into that same space of like, I'm sick of this and like, what's the point of it if I'm not enjoying it? For, for me, it always comes with the, some sort of discovery around a specific technique of making. So like looking at Legos and being like, think I could pour concrete into it. That's normally the moment I enjoy of the project the most because the minute I think, could that, what will happen, right? What will the texture of the concrete be like? Will the, the, will the Legos be really difficult to, to clean? Then it's like, then there's a, there's, a, there's a cliffhanger involved with the project. I'm already intellectually interested because I'm not sure how it's gonna come out. Um, with trying to bend the steel, which is what I've been sort of focusing on lately, uh, I knew that I could bend like an eighth inch sort of steel bar that's like four inches wide. I wasn't sure like, and I knew if I scored it, it would make it easier to bend, but I didn't know if it would be easy enough that I could, that I could still bend it without sort of some sort of, you know, a mechanical device. And then if I could bend it, would it still be strong enough to be functional without having to overly reinforce or weld it back in? So it's those sort of like, the, the, uh, uh, the excitement of coming up with a hypothesis and then the anticipation of figuring out how you're going to test it, and then figuring out if those, the results can actually be interesting or useful to anyone else. It's that sort of engagement, I think, is the part I sort of enjoy the most. Uh, making new shapes for tables and chairs and, and coffee tables is, is fun, but to me, the most enjoyable part and the projects I remember the most is when they're sort of like, ooh, this isn't how you're supposed to do this, but this might work, and for someone in this set of circumstances, it might be a lot easier. And for me, that's why I think um, traveling just in general and looking at uh, different cultures that have different sort of practices of fabrication is way more inspirational than looking at like a catalog of furniture. Because if you look at a catalog of furniture, you're just seeing a whole bunch of shapes and profiles. You're not, you don't know if these are made by giant machines or they're carved by hands, and it's, it's getting harder and harder to tell. 
But when you walk around like different parts of the world and you see how fabrication happens at the street level in some places, in giant factories in other places, I feel like that's where you get a lot more of these sort of hypotheses and you see things in all their sort of creative misuses in addition to their sort of uh, uh, correct uses. Beautiful. I like it. Let's leave it there. That's good stuff. So I guess building on what Ben just said, um, all three of you now have tried using the CNC, right? You use yeah. Ben's, right? I use Chris's. Chris's. Yeah. I won't let him use mine. <laughs> he doesn't clean up after himself. You, well, That's you, a lie. You don't clean up you after too. yourself. <laughs> Why are you hoarding all the CNCs, right? Yeah. So um, I have a lot of friends who are, like, honest to God, fine furniture makers. And they go to, you know, like, um, different trade shows and such, and they see these million-dollar machines where you insert wood and out pops chair on the other side. Right. So what they're kind of trained to think is there's no like artistic expression, there's certainly no craft in that, um, but I think they're looking at it really narrowly. Um, what do you guys feel are sort of the artistic uh, options that really this new tool generates for you guys? Well, I think what's interesting about, especially a CNC like the Inventables, like X-Carve or the Shape Oko is it can't spit out a finished piece. It's a step in the process. And so when somebody looks at, looks at a CNC and says, oh, you're not doing any of the work, the machine's doing it all for you, that's someone that hasn't done the dive into it. I've done one CNC project with Chris. How many problems did we... I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, Chris needs to brush up on his CNC skills. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, it was the, the machine had, not that the machine had problems, but there's, there's variables involved. We messed up on the file. We messed up on the file, that's yeah. true. So I think one thing is, I think when someone uses a tool like that, they get the understanding that, oh, this isn't a robot that spits out a finished piece. And then on the same thing is, I think you need to look at what it's useful for. Accuracy and repeatability. Yes, you can scroll saw a sign, but you could also make a precise vector file mill it on a CNC and have that much better of a product. You're still going through the same steps, except you're not sitting for 12 hours at a scroll saw or a band saw. It's just recognizing what the trade-off is, and is the trade-off in skill? Is the trade-off in time? Or is it a little bit of the both? Instead of trading off in skill, it's just developing a different skill. It's not not using skill. And to that sense, yeah, you have a, like what you're saying, your friends that are fine furniture craftsmen, They've dealt, they're proud of this skill because they've taken a lot of time to develop it, but in that same sense, tell them to make a CNC, like, carve-ready file, they've got to go through the same learning curve that someone needs to go through to learn how to do dovetail, dovetail joints. So it's just choosing, choosing what has value to you and how you work. It, yeah. it, it's funny that people always focus on the new classes of machines that make things easier rather than the incremental improvements, right? Like... Uh, the project I've been working on lately is this, is this lounge chair, and I freehanded all the cuts with my circular saw. And circular saws today are way better than the circular saws used to be. They're, and and it's, it's not even close. Uh, there's less sort of jerkiness, they're much lighter, you can one-hand them, you can have a lot more uh, control over them. Blades are way better than they used to be. The, the, the affordability of really like hardened uh, uh, steel for, for sharper and, and more precisely cut, uh, cutting blades is ridiculous compared to what it used to be. I remember the first circular saw I, I ever used, it was just like stamped out of a piece of like 16-inch uh, steel, and it was just 
dull and rusty and, and, and terrible. And I always associated circular saws with like the kind of a smoky smell, <laughs> uh, which, which was coming. So it, it's, it's funny, like it's the same thing with like cars, right? People really like to focus on self-driving cars versus this. But the interesting thing would be taking like a basic Ford Focus today and then racing it on a rally race versus like a Porsche from like, you know, 40 years ago. And, and seeing the, the performance differences there. So I think in terms of ease, the ease isn't from the new tool types because with the new tool types, there's still a learning curve and there's often like, and the, the 3D modeling software is actually way more difficult than the, the, the handheld sort of tools. So I think that the, the thing that people don't look at enough about what's getting easier is just how much better the glue is, how much better the, the blades are, how much better all the individual tools are. It's much easier to cut things straight and precisely. There's way more options for specialty blades than there used to be. And yes, people like to decry the lack of quality for like, oh, you know, table saws today have a lot of plastic in them. They still work, you know, a lot better than, than a lot of those other ones did and with a lot more sort of features and options and stuff like that. So I think if anything's getting easier, it's more through the incremental progression of all the handhold tools. That's also something that people don't, they, may, they also make this mistake a lot when they compare, I, I always hear this on like a, the Joe Rogan podcast, he'll say, oh, in the future, we're just going to 3D print, we're going to download files and 3D print things. And it's because he's thinking that this innovation is happening only with 3D printers. We've had 2D printers for a really long time. No one downloads PDFs and print, prints books at home. A long Good time point. ago, the minute those <laughs> printers first came out, people said, oh, it's going to be so easy. No one's ever going to use a real printing press. There's still economies of scales. There's still the innovation of centralized production versus those kind of things. So. Uh, Anytime someone says, oh, there's these machines, they're easy to use, you put in a piece of wood and it spits out furniture, no, that, that's, that doesn't really exist. And when it does, the bleeding edge of those machines, is the, the control interface is going to be so complicated that it's not going to be easy. Yeah. yeah, I would have answered that a lot the same as what the two of you just said, so I'll try to take a different angle at it um, and look at it. So from the perspective of the people who would be saying that, you know, part of that's out of, I guess, fear that yep. like you know what you've been learning is becoming obsolete or whatever but if i look at it from the consumer's point of view who's going to get it like how many of them really care how it was produced i know there are some out there that do but i would say the vast majority don't they just want the best outcome possible and i think it's kind of a weird way that we look at that the way that we value that so even if just take something that's not in furniture design a graphic designer right and if you hired a graphic designer and he spent a week coming up with ideas, brought it back to you, and you're like, eh, they're okay, I'm not really in love with any of these. Then you hired another graphic, graphic designer, and in five minutes he came back to you with something awesome. There'd be people who would think like, oh, he didn't work as hard at this, so it's not valued the same. But in reality, you should be like, the end result is better. That's what you're paying for. And so I think there's kind of a parallel with, with uh, CNC'd furniture that you can draw there. It also creates sort of an economy of, de of design rarity that gets sort of works itself out, right? So it used to be that precision and flatness was the hallmark of craftsmanship. Then machines made that more and more common to the point where all of a sudden people started valuing things that looked like they were hand chiseled, right? So what happened was is the rare thing became common and then the old rare thing becomes valuable again. If you look in like the, the 60s, you'll see a lot of advertisements for genuine plastic furniture because plastic was rare. It was expensive then. 
you'll, you won't see that as much now, um, right? So these things, whatever becomes too easy or too dominant loses stylistic or sort of uh, cultural value. And then the reverse thing, the sort of rare hand batch thing does. Like, again, you'll often look in, like, I like looking at, like, old uh, Sears catalogs from, like, the, the 18 and early 1900s. And they'll say things like genuine factory produced, right? Like, because hand, handmade was common and was seen as inferior and not desirable. And things that came from big cities, people used to love white sugar. If you ever read like a Little House in the Prairie books, they talk about white sugar like it's the most amazing culinary invention ever. Like white sugar, white bread is just like, it's so like consistent and clean. Like, and now it's like the exact opposite. Uh, it's like people want the artisanal sort of defects because they see that as being more rare. So the minute those machines do exist where you can put in a piece of wood and that, people will find some difference in that outcome and deem it less valuable as it becomes more common. I don't know, man. I said, give me that Wonder Bread. Yeah. <laughs> well, you also mainly <laughs> eat Pop-Tarts. <laughs> it's a nice change of pace. Tell me you didn't eat them this morning. It, it's funny. Chris is artistic. It's funny, like when I first saw, when I saw Chris's first video, I was just like, oh, this guy probably does like hand-pressed coffee. But it's weird, it's like, you're very like hipstery in this like one aspect of your life, but you're like super like Pop-Tart, cereal, <laughs> consumer, and everything else. I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I like it, that's good. I don't All got right. a fixie, but I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> awesome, anybody else? Don't be shy. Well, All right, I'm be. going here, I'm going here. I'm going. <laughs> Okay. Oh, okay, we can rip well, no, out. we need it for the podcast. I get it for the pod. For the listeners, the audio-only listeners. Uh, I just wanted to know how uh, Gary the Squirrel is liking his uh, handmade uh, dining table set. <laughs> All right, so who, for whoever doesn't know, I hope people know, because Gary is a real treasure. Uh, <laughs> I built him a little dining table that looked like the first dining table I built when I got out to Joshua Tree. You guys tell me, because I finished the table, and I think I left like three days later after f finishing it, getting all my shots. What happened to it? Is it, is it still intact? Jesse, where'd it go? <laughs> my, okay, perfect. But no, I mean, Gary's, Gary's amazing. What, what's crazy about it is we're already about six generations deep into the lineage. Yeah, they, the Garys multiply fast. So now we're giving them kind of Game of Thrones names. So there's Gary Halftail. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. Gary the Brave. He's the most adventurous and we'll, we'll, we'll climb on you first and scare the other ways around. There's, what, what do we call Fat Gary? <laughs> Gary, Gary, Gary Little, Little Finger. Finger. He has kind of like a broken claw. But um, he presses on. No, it, it's, it's been really funny because uh, basically we, you know, we get up in the morning, we'll go outside, have a cup of coffee, and they'll come right over. It's, it's amazing how quickly they sort of acclimated to us. And I kind of think we've, un we've not taken full advantage of their cuteness into sort of YouTube videos. I tried, man. You tried, yeah. I left too soon. <laughs> we did have uh, Cutworks over here on Instagram produced us uh, a nice Gary go-round. That's right. Uh, and... It's, it's funny to see how quickly they figure out how to, like, so they'll climb onto it, and they'll get the food, and then when they jump off, it'll start spinning. But the next one will come up, and he'll put his hand on it to kind of stop it, and then he'll climb on. Like, seeing how quickly they learn is pretty, pretty impressive. It's a good lesson in problem solving. Yeah. Smart carries. What yeah. do you think, Chris, from an outside perspective? 
Nothing. I say I think we move on to the next question. Wow. <laughs> Gary Hater. He's <laughs> a real Gary Hater. All right. Yes. You do. Um, so where do you see the future of your business going in content creation? Do you think that YouTube is going to continue to be the main form of what you guys produce, or do you see it going other places? Uh, I, I don't think YouTube will be the main format. Right? But it will always be an addition it'll be, to It'll be a part of it. Um, I think it's going to be more towards long format videos. Um, if you look just in general, I feel like the, the big, YouTube's doing great. But the big, when YouTube had its biggest moments in growth was when there was fewer streaming platforms and there was less long format content available on the internet. Now it's like, I mean, Disney and Fox are gonna be putting a lot of money into it. Apple's putting a lot of money onto sort of streaming content. It used to be, if you were producing stuff on YouTube, you're competing against other YouTubers. Now you're competing against every sort of media company because everyone's pivoting to video. That's, yeah. if, if you talk to anyone in media, they'll all talk about this sort of pivoting to video. Our advantage is that we can produce video at scale, where it's like, so you take like an HGTV show, they might have 30 to 40 people to make a show. That show, the average show, I think gets about 400 to 500,000 views. So that's a really inefficient way to reach a middle-sized audience compared to what we're doing. But you look at a show like Walking Dead, which might have you know, a few hundred people uh, uh, producing it, and it's reaching you know, 10 million people uh, per episode over the lifetime of it. The more that they put those sort of that type of content premieres on streaming, where it's more accessible to everybody, no matter what cable package they have, that's our sort of competition in the future. But it's also from a business standpoint, we are we pound for pound, meaning the amount of hours it takes us to build, add an audience member, we can do it for way cheaper than any production company. So, uh, what I think is really exciting is that if if you if you Strip out all the platforms. Forget YouTube, forget Instagram, forget all those things. You look at the, just the general trends. I think people will continue to watch more video and read less. I think people will watch more of that video on mobile platforms than sort of stationary platforms. And companies will need to cater to all sorts of niches more and more and more. Uh, I was uh, reading an article about that Netflix show, Altered Carbon, which had a huge budget but was like really like hardcore sci-fi and they were saying, Netflix was saying, it's worth us to throw a lot of money at a hardcore niche audience. And to me, that's what's really exciting. Because uh, what people are saying is that they're seeing viable business opportunities in specific niche content, and it's worth investing into. Uh, so I think from a video production standpoint, it doesn't really matter what happens to the platforms. If you're able to produce content where it's driven from a creative standpoint, the initiation of all of our content is ideas. It's not format. It's not, it's not like the way like a, a, a most television shows are created, which is like they pick the format first, and then they try to find a creative way to do the format. Uh, it's more coming from an idea, which is why all of our editing and voiceover and project types are all completely different. So I'm really excited about it. I think uh, early next year, uh, the three of us are, are, are trying to figure out how to do more long format content. Because I think that in the future, Netflix will be as open to individual, uh, well maybe not quite as open, but it won't be uncommon for people that used to produce on YouTube to be producing stuff for Netflix or some of these other streaming services that just need a bigger library. To uh, kind of piggyback on what Ben already said about just consumption going up, people will continue to consume video, all that. I think that the 
one of the biggest areas that consumption is going to grow up is actually in things like podcasts. Um, I just, I know everybody's different, but if I just think about it from my point of view, how many hours of video can I consume a week? Like maybe four, of it, four hours or so. But I can consume like 20 hours of podcasts because I'm driving back and forth to work, go to the gym, I'm working and I'm listening to them. So I think that that has huge potential for us going forward. And I mean, if we, it's easy to give up on because like if we're just being realistic, what we've got out of it so far financially is not worth the time that we put into it compared to just like I could have just made another video. You're talking about the that. podcast. Yes, podcasting. But I think that going forward, it's going to be a ton of value in it. And I think that the other thing about it is that like, in, I don't know if you guys, but with the interactions that we have with people, I think like the podcast feels like the thing that they're most connected to. Like it's the thing that if somebody watches your YouTube videos, sees you on Instagram, and listens to your podcast, the thing that they're most likely to talk to you about is something that you said on the podcast. So I think that there's like a lot of connection there, and there's a lot of potential for consumption to go way up. Yeah, it's like I would watch a funny video where someone get kicks in the, kicked in the nuts, but I wouldn't want to listen to it over and over and over again. That's what I do. Yeah, that's true. But what's the parallel there? Well, I'm just saying that I only listen to things I actually find interesting. Oh, I'll watch okay. a lot of stupid shit. Perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like it. There we go. Perfect. Who's next? What's your name? Jordan. Jordan. Fresno. We drove all the way down. Anyway, you guys talked about niche, like find, appealing to niche audiences. I, I assume most of the people here have been, are not like basic DIY. I noticed a lot of like videos appeal to like the lowest common denominator of skill, like least amount of tools, least amount of money. Do you see kind of venturing into maybe not top fine hand tool everything, but like people that might have planers and a little bit more mid-level because the comment trolls come out when you do anything that's like level two or three. I, can I, I go? Yeah, I, I think the basis should always be where you have the best ideas. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, say, can I go? You're good. Uh, <laughs> can I go? Yeah, yeah you can go after, after me. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just waiting for you to jump in. No, yeah. Oh, okay. We're about to get heated. Ooh. Um, Sorry, I, I wasn't actually listening to you. Uh, <laughs> but no, what I was going to say, and no, I'm kidding, go. <laughs> uh, no, I think it should, I think it's dangerous to, to decide these are the types of videos I'm going to make, right? Same with tools. Right. You should look at your, you should do an inventory of where you think your best ideas are and do that. It doesn't matter if one's only involves like a few basic hand tools and one involves like lasers, CNC's, and a, you know, a crane, like, uh, Wherever your best creative is, because that's the opposite of what a production company or a media company would produce. They'll always decide, they'll assume, they would take all of us right here and they would try to find the, the, the lowest common denominator and then make the most generic thing that, that averages it all out. And that's, the, that's not a good way to, to do anything creative. So I think it should always be what are your best ideas, what are the things you're most excited about, and do it that way. And it really doesn't matter if it's 3D printing one week or I think Bob from I Like to Make Stuff is a great example. He's done everything from pallet wood uh, furniture to 3D printed things to hidden rooms. He, and that's the interesting part. He didn't yeah. start with 3D printers. He didn't start with CNC's. He got introduced to them and then introduced that to his audience. Um, and people are going to relate to certain projects you do. Other people are not going to relate it. It could be one person that, you know, someone that might have a wood shop like Chris and then see me cutting down plywood on a piece of insulation on the floor, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not for me. Well, that's okay. Maybe my next project, I'm breaking it all down on the table saw. But my goal is, what can I do with 
not the least amount of tools, but how can I get this done efficiently? Obviously, I'm not going to go way out of my way to do things, but how can I do this the most approachable way for the person that doesn't have X, Y, or Z? Yeah, if, I, if, or, if I think about two YouTubers I really like, Jimmy DeResta and Primitive Technologies. Yeah. If you like, I like, I'll watch one video, and then I might watch another one and switch back and forth. If someone tried to sort of figure me out as a demographic, they would, they would pick something in, in between that would be not good at all. Right. Right? So one guy has no tools. One guy is literally surrounded and drowning in <laughs> warehouses and barns full of tools. So it's like, it's not that the tools are interesting or it's not that working with your hands is interesting. It's that they're doing interesting stuff at a high level. It's the projects. Um, so when those are good, the content's normally pretty engaging. Next question. Oh, I wow. Got no, I got nothing to add. Backing out on that one. Yeah, we're doing? right here. Chris, that's you. That's me. How's it going? Uh, starting off as an entrepreneur myself, I'm interested, uh, what, who and what made you decide to start Maker Brand? How do you go about, as a team, collectively going through ideas, and if you can possibly talk about the future of it? Yeah. I mean, I guess it kind of started with Mike. Mike. Just pro constantly pitching you guys ideas for what we should be I doing. Mean, yeah, I guess we can talk about <laughs> relentlessly. Mike well, brings a new business idea to us every every week. Every, yeah, every, every week. week. I'm like, guys, scrap it. This is what we should be doing now. <laughs> you told me we should be making sketch comedies last night. You I did, and I'm, I'm, I stick behind that until this time next week. Uh, but no, I, I think it's right now we're what we do, the makers, the, the generalists, people that aren't specialized in anything specific, people willing to try anything. We're underserved when it comes to tools. You have contractor-grade things that are great for uh, doing construction things. But when it comes to building furniture, we're working in different tolerances. You know, if, if you're building a home and you're off by a sixteenth of an inch, an eighth of an inch, that's okay because you're working at the span of a 40-foot stretch. But when you're, when you're building furniture, even though those same tools have a, a good application for what we're doing, they're not designed for us. Right. And so... That's what it was. It was seeing. It was the same thing with our content. There, there's there's, there's HGTV content. There's DIY network content. And then on that other same same side of the coin, there's fine woodworking. There's all the magazines that you pick up in a woodcraft store. Those are great for everybody out there. For the for the person that loves to see reveals before and after, HGTV is there for them. For the person that loves building craftsmen. Uh, green and green type furniture, the content is there for them. But for us, the content wasn't there. I saw people like Ben. I saw people like uh, Bob, Jimmy, that were doing what I wanted to do. And so once I saw that, I dove in head first. And I think that's, what we're, that's the approach that we're taking with right. Maker Brand is, what are we all using that could be better? Because there's always room for improvement. And if there's something that's compelling to all three of us and something that is useful to the mass of us generalists, then that's something we should be pursuing, I think. And from a business side, there's, there's a retail gap, Yeah. right? So the, the tools that we're, that we're working on right now aren't, we're not inventing new things, but what we sort of saw as missing in the marketplace is there's retailers like Home Depot and uh, companies that sort of cater to home improvement and contractors, and then there's like the fine woodworking, like Rockler and stuff like that. They're both great, they're great. But then Amazon and these other sort of unbranded entities are sort of selling generically in the sort of middle. And what I would always find is like when we discovered something that we liked on Amazon, we'd always share it amongst ourselves. 
because it wasn't just another brand we could say, oh, check out X brand of their sawhorses. I found these like folding metal, heavy duty sawhorses and I'd be like, oh, Mike, check these out. These things are awesome. Or he'd find like a good hairpin brand that he liked or a good Japanese pole saw that he, that he likes. And there, there isn't, there's a lot of good product options out there being produced independently, but there wasn't like a cohesive brand that could explain why they're good. And we saw a good opportunity to sort of curate these things, make minor improvements that fit the type of sort of general making that we do. For the clamps, it's like a great example. I'm not as much of a fine work worker as Chris. I don't really need Bessie clamps, but I need a clamp that doesn't take up, uh, I don't want to have separate clamps for metalworking and for woodworking. I want some general clamps that can do a lot of everything and then have a few specialty clamps only when I need it so they're not taking up as much wall or shop space. So just seeing little things like that and just having a preference for, oh, positive stops versus like little levers that can become, you ever done that where you're like trying to tighten something and you realize you're just sliding the end of the clamp? It's not like it took up so much of your time or ruined your project, but it's so annoying because you feel stupid. And <laughs> just saying like, hey, let's have positive stops on these things, right? And I know that whenever I find a brand that has all those like features that I like, I share it amongst my friends. So it's like, why don't we just start curating these complete collections that we like? You know, to, to take the question a little bit wider, so going back to just talking about being entrepreneurial, I think that the kind of life cycle of anybody that does this, it probably often follows the same path where it's like, okay, this looks interesting. I want to do it. You start doing it. You're lucky enough to build up some traction. You get some brands that start contacting you. They want to give you stuff. Oh man, this is awesome. Somebody wants to give me stuff. You use it. You go on a little bit further. Hopefully things get better. They want to pay me to promote their stuff. Whoa. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome, right? And then at some point, I think you think like, okay, so I mean, if they're this is a great situation. They're willing to pay me to promote whatever they have. That means they're making more off of it than I'm making from of it, or I'm making from it. What if I had something to sell instead of being the middleman between them? I think that's kind of like, you know, no matter what the thing was, we all kind of knew that we all wanted to go down that path. And then Maker Brand came about like right at the time that we were talking about different ideas. Yeah, and literally, we have conversations about this kind of stuff every week. So we can, we can take a point of frustration. So I'm always really bad at remembering which types of finishes I can use in combination, right? I always say, OK, can I use this oil with like polyurethane? Like, and it never says on, on the container. So we're working on a line of finishes right now. We're like, not everyone's an expert. Not everyone's a woodworker. And if you go into the aisle of like a woodworking or Home Depot. Even Home Depot, yeah. They have a whole lot of pictures of guys in flannel with glasses and suspenders, but they have very little information on the front of the things that actually tells you compatibility. Right. That's, that's dumb. And they literally think that that old dude in flannel has brand value. And I, I don't think so. I think the information and navigating compatibility and giving better swatches for predictability for color, uh, explaining sort of uh, safety things and toxicity. Those and even on that same front, it's... To that, to those brands, you look, you go to Home Depot and you want a stain. I know I want medium brown, but there's 13 different medium browns, and so you're just dreading that decision because you don't, you don't, you want to, you like provincial, but early American is good too, and <laughs> and like, what am I gonna do? Just go like grab some boards off the shelf and like secretly put them on there to see how they look. So I think a lot of brands just see an overwhelming amount of options as value rather than curating things that. The people that use them, us, the people that will be using them, and you guys, 
picking what's best because we actually use it, not just giving an absurd amount of options. It's like curating what's best. Yeah, and, and so we're, we're literally taking the points of frustration that we have. So I know that yeah. in my, my shop in Boston, I'll experiment every once in a while with, like a, with a colored stain, but I'll, which means that right now I have a bunch of probably like eight, Half empty? Three, no, probably three quarters full uh, <laughs> jars of different colors where I got it, tried it, mm, not quite. And then it just sits there until it eventually turns into like sludge that's not usable. And then I throw it away. So just taking the, and when I talk to my co hosts and I'm Mike, like Chris. That's Chris, Chris. Chris is really organized. <laughs> uh, Mike and I have more similar working styles, or even just other makers in our sort of community you find that a lot of these pain points are, are common. And we're like, well, why can't we sell the pigments separate from the, the base ingredients so you don't have to get as much material, but you can mix it right to the color that you want there really efficiently. So it's just looking at the common sense things that we would do. And when we talk to, it's funny, like uh, Jimmy DeResto always talks about how he'll, he'll try to talk to tool companies and give them advice and they'll just be like, and it's been largely the same experience uh, yeah. for us. So it's like, well, if they're not listening, how about we just do it ourselves? And maybe we won't sell enough to ever be on the shelves of Home Depot, but we know that it'll be stuff that we want to use and that our, a lot of our friends will as well. Big time. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, um, <laughs> so like the majority of the people uh, you know, that are here, you guys started by yourselves. What do you guys feel was the hardest part about uh, about working together and putting your stuff out there for other people to judge ultimately? Getting out of your comfort zone, probably. Yeah. For I think at least for the part about starting on your own, yeah, you're just worried about how people are going to judge you. I always tell people though now when they're nervous about that is like the good news is if like your first video comes out and it's crap, like two people are going to see it that you know, and you're probably not going to be judged that hard. So. Um, that really kind of takes that issue off the table. As far as, uh, you know, once you get into it and if you do get a little bit of traction and people are watching it, you're gonna, I don't know. I mean, like, for all the negative things that we say, like, oh, I got this comment, whatever, it's all still, like, 99% positive. Wouldn't you guys say so? Right. So, yeah. and especially different communities, like, obviously, YouTube is the most negative, not counting Reddit. Um, but like Instagram's always like totally positive. So that comfort zone, I don't know, that wasn't that hard, I don't think. In terms of working together. Um, you were the one that initiated everything. Yeah, it was kind of, I had gone on Instagram live one night, then you went on Instagram live later that night. And yeah. so I just messaged you like, hey, you ever want to start a podcast? And <laughs> I thought he was joking. The, the formula seemed to be three people. We we're t thinking, who else can we get for a third? And uh, Mike's like, yeah, hey, I know Ben. Yeah. I was like, oh, don't you think he's too big to want to do it? And he's like, well, I'll just ask him. And he's like, yeah, he'll do it. And we're like, oh, sweet. I guess we're doing a podcast. Yeah. But, I mean, working with them, I, I'm trying to think of a struggle. Like, there really hasn't been one. I think it's been really beneficial for me. In but every step along the way was getting out of your comfort zone. But it's yeah. just coming to the realization that I don't do it. This is the possibility. I do go right. outside of my comfort zone. This is the possibility. You weigh them. Is it worth going out of your comfort zone? If the question is yes, go for it. Yeah. For me, it was just taking myself too seriously. And, and right. coming from a background in architecture, my, when I was publishing the first videos, I never shared them on my personal social media because I was thinking, okay, these are all my friends that I went to architecture school with. We're all used to working on really clean, modern, really cool buildings. This kind of like 
Martha Stewart crap is just going to be embarrassing. <laughs> um, I fundamentally believed in that design should be more focused on uh, affordableness and accessibility and shouldn't be as much about, hey, great design only happens in the biggest cities. It only is a service for the wealthiest people. So I believe in that concept, but it doesn't mean that stepping out into this kind of more amateurish uh, design arena wasn't uh, something that I was, I, I was definitely embarrassed of my first few projects, not amongst my sort of casual friends, but amongst my design friends. So I think that was the, that was sort of the hardest part. I knew that once I had audience, it wouldn't be embarrassing because then you have numbers to kind of justify it. But I think posting something with, without the sort of support of a crowd is, is, can be challenging, especially if you if you sort of associate your identity and the value you pr provide to civilization as being related to that endeavor, which for me was designed. So I think that was the, definitely the hardest part. Yeah, I agree. Kind of same stuff. Perfect. Let's do one last question. We'll round it out. All right. You already asked one. I got to go here. You got to come up here, though. Sorry. Matt from Phoenix. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious as to your guys' thoughts on, we have a, there's a lot of making content production going on. Do you think we're nearing um, a point of oversaturation or how far in advance do you, th do you think that, you know, we will, or if we'll ever reach that point? Let me take this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got him. No, because there's channels like Hantle Rescue. There's channels like uh, Bobby Duke that are, they're making things, but they're doing unique things. There's always room for innovation. There's always room for people trying new things, showing people that new things are possible. Yeah, maybe there's not gonna be five more Jimmy Duresta's doing what Jimmy Duresta's doing, but I think one Jimmy's good enough. He's pretty, like, he can round it out. Um, but there'll always be room for people that add value to the conversation, whatever that conversation is. And it's also like, you know, supply and demand, so, Yes, this space is getting more saturated, but I think that the demand is going up with it. And I think if you just look at the landscape of media right now, and there's going to be a huge shift in it in the next couple years, maybe sooner, especially with like all the traditional TV like sports packages are basically what's like keeping them afloat right now, are all up for new negotiation. And you know some of those might go to Facebook or to YouTube or whatever. So that's going to shift the landscape of media a lot in the coming years. And I think when that does happen, it, if anything, it might end up being the reverse where there's a shortage of people that are doing this kind of stuff for all the brands that are going to start valuing it and wanting to work. With and the them. same with the new audience. Imagine everybody watching DIY Network started watching right. YouTube. Yeah, They're all interested in different aspects of what that encompasses and people need to fill that need. I think it'll mirror television, right? Where it used to be when like MASH was on the season finale of MASH, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people watched it, right? So there might not ever be TV shows that big or that populous, the, uh, like Cheers or MASH or even Friends from, from back Seinfeld. in the day. Seinfeld too, right? But it's not like there's fewer people working in television today. It's the opposite. So there's more television jobs now than ever before. There's just not, you know, Game of Thrones and maybe I think Walking Dead are like two of the, of the, of the scripted television shows that have the biggest audiences. Not nearly as big as those, those other shows that I mentioned back in the day. But there's more jobs in television production than ever before. And so when you say saturation, 
we might not, you know, eventually we might see a point where there's, we're, we're capped on the number of like mega influencers, but I don't think we're even there yet. Uh, I think about all the time, all the types of content that aren't being produced. There aren't a lot of really good smart home DIY channels, right? We know that technology is being integrated more and more into the homes, but we don't have like someone doing projects where it's like, oh, I wake up, my alarm clock uh, immediately opens the, the blinds and is doing videos that are sort of related to lifestyle and all through automated processes. Um, we, ha you know, we know we'll see trends where blender sales went up hugely like a few years ago. Vitamix. Yeah, Vitamixes, Blendtec, all those, those blenders started selling like crazy as people sort of making more smoothies. Everyone complains about cleaning them. No one's combined a blender and a dishwasher yet to make like an undercounter appliance that can make you a smoothie and then cleans itself. I don't know if I would trust it. Right. <laughs> but you might be interested to see how someone went about doing it. So I, I think that we haven't even scratched the surface, when especially when it comes to integrating technolo te uh, technology practically into homes. I get pitched a lot of smart home stuff all the time, and a lot of it's really not that smart. Like... Uh, like something where you can turn the shower on from the, the phone. I mean, okay, but like it's not that hard. We're, but and you know what's weird? They didn't even do like turning the bath. Like filling a bathtub from your phone makes more sense. That's, a, that's more of a, you know, something that takes more time. But they didn't do that. They made the thing that turns the shower on with the, the Bathtub's with the a liability, man. You're just going to go flood in <laughs> your house all day. But so, no, I want to piggyback off of, off of what Chris was saying with TV. I think a takeaway to kind of play devil's advocate, though, is when you look at especially cable networks like A&E, all that kind of stuff, uh, you look at, like, Pawn Stars. I think people know what Pawn Stars is. Well, it had, like, four spinoffs and four shows on four different networks that were doing the exact same thing. You look at Storage Wars, same kind of same genre, same general audience, but they had five shows. As, as soon as that one was successful, five pe people copied it. And the ship went down with all of it. Like, all Pawn Stars is now is reruns because there's enough of that content to go around. Just find what there's not enough content to go around for, and people will watch it. Yeah, and I think we'll get saturated with derivative content, but not right. with original content. All right, you guys obsessed with anything? Before we do that, let's do some thank yous real quick. So, for everybody, you know, for hosting us, Local yes. Fixture. Local Fixture. Big thank you. At Local Fixture on Instagram. And also, I would like to thank uh, Rad Toast for the Rad Tacos. Woo! Oh, yeah. I'd also like to thank my wife, Dolores, for helping organize Dolores. everything. Big ups. And I guess most of all, thank all of you for coming out here and supporting us. And I'd also, Big I would round like of applause. I'd also oh, like yeah. to, to apologize to the few people who may have been dragged here by boyfriends or husbands. That, <laughs> No, thank you all for coming. We yeah, really absolutely. It. We really appreciate that and all the, all the support, like on an individual level, the fact that you guys watch what we produce, you guys build what we build, and uh, you listen to us collectively and, and follow along with that too. It's, it's yeah. really amazing, incredibly humbling, and uh, I'm excited for the future with all of this. It's amazing. Yes. So what we're obsessed with? Thanking people. <laughs> You're obsessed with... <laughs> Let me think of something. You guys. I, I got one. All right, all right. I'm obsessed with Mike's backflip technique. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Did anyone see? I, I posted right before Mike decided okay. to prepare for... Okay. Do, Let's back up one step further All in right. the story. So Chris has a trampoline in his backyard. Whoa. 
Mike decides a good way to get ready for the 100th episode is to jump on a trampoline. Got to break a sweat. Then he's like, okay. He had his front flip game down. Nailed it. Oh, yeah. He's like, I've always struggled with backflips. So. And I'm like, well, maybe not try right before just in case, you know. I've seen. You don't, yeah, you don't want to hurt yourself naturally. That makes sense. That's so rational. I shot a video of a noble effort at a backflip. Did you repost? Did you post the one where I landed it? That's the question. No. that's. Oh, my God. So uh, we, we're going to have but, a very good conversation after this in private. The part that was really impressive was like he wasn't really – he jumped as high as he could and then sort of made an effort to flip but totally like went for it at the same time. So much like he does everything else, it was like you know a reasonable amount of preparation, a lot of confidence, and going all the way. Thanks, man. But I did. But you got it the second time. Did I do any prep? I did a front flip. That's the preparation. Yeah. Counting in. You do front flip, then you do back yeah. flip. Perfect. Now just do that in reverse. So it, it's, it's in my Instagram stories now. It's it's Are you spectacular. Gonna, you know, at, at Benjamin we'll put it on the we'll put it on, we'll put it on the Modern Makeup Podcast. The the good flip. Perfect. No, put it on yours. Take it. <laughs> All right, Chris. What are you obsessed with now, my man? Okay, so one of the uh, I guess sort of reoccurring themes or jokes that we've had in this podcast over the year and a couple months we've been doing it is making fun of Applebee's. So I'm obsessed with this shirt right here. What, let's see it. Yes. <gasps> wow. We gotta take a picture of that. We'll take a picture of it. We'll put it on the yeah. Instagram. <laughs> let's you gotta, see. You got to do some modeling for it. That's incredible. Yeah. It's nice to see the, uh, the people get creative and poking fun at Applebee's also. And I've still never eaten there, by the way. But maybe tonight, after this. Who's up for some... <laughs> Is that yeah. the plan now? All right, I'm going to go with uh, a, a classic on the scene. Yeah. Uh, formerly the Drunken Woodworker, Dave Picciuto from Make Something. Uh-huh. He's in the process. The video's not even out yet, but I think it will be by the time the podcast is live. But he's making some kind of table with some kind of crazy pattern using all kinds of different wood. I've been following it on Instagram, at Make Something. If you're not following him, check that out. That is my obsession for the week. Very and nice. always. I love Dave. Dave's, <laughs> Dave's the best. All right. Should we round it out? Yeah. If you're not already, make sure. Follow us at Modern Builds, at Midget Minueta, and at Four Eyes Furniture. Collectively, we're at Modern Builds. Don't forget, leave us that five-star review on the iTunes app. That just lets the app know that we're a good podcast and that they should sh- – oh, God dang it. <laughs> and that they should suggest it to other people. Thank you guys for listening. And until next time, this has been the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. See you later. Bye. Woo! Thank you, guys. Y'all are amazing. This is amazing. It wasn't recording.